welcome to a new series we are calling Conversations With. My name is Shaylee Hugendorn and I live with Bipolar 2 Disorder. And my name is Julie Kraft and I am also living with Bipolar 2 Disorder. Julie and I believe in the power of storytelling. We know that sharing with others is healing both individually and collectively. There are so many different experiences. So we wanted to share more stories of Bipolar with you and interview others. Our stories are powerful. They can become a source of strength and hope and inspiration. Our voices need to be heard. Our stories aren't over yet. This is Bipolar. I am so excited. Welcome to This is Bipolar Conversation Series. I am Shaylee Hugendorn. I am half of This is Bipolar. Um, uh, Julie isn't here today. We will miss her greatly. Um, I live with Bipolar 2 Disorder. And um, we are here to tell stories. And I'm so excited to have Maria as our very first guest to tell her story. Julie and I both know um, how powerful and freeing it was to share um, with all of you. And so we want other people to feel the same way. And so Maria got a hold of us a couple months ago and sent us a, a short clip about her story and we just fell in love with her. So I'm so excited for you to meet Maria. I'm gonna get Maria to tell you a little bit about herself because I am terrible at introductions. I almost forget names every time. So that's one of the strategies that I use for my anxiety is I ask my guests to introduce themselves. So Maria. Oh. <laughs> Hi, um, my name is uh, Maria Fernandez. I am 27 years old, creeping up on the big 3-0. <laughs> I am a Zumba instructor, um, specifically Zumba Gold. So I teach for the senior community, which is really fun. Um, and I also provide respite care um, for my little sister. And I also am an Inland Theatre League judge, so I get to go to different theatrical productions of our local community theatres, and I get to judge them, which I'm pretty excited about. <laughs> I knew zero of those things. Those are, that's awesome. I love that so much. Thank you. The funders. I want to come to your Zumba class. I can guarantee you though that the people are probably better than me. <laughs> hey, you know what? It's all about having fun. That's the great part about it, you know? We just do a little wiggle here and there and you got it. <laughs> I love it. I'm usually the one that's backwards, but I still have fun, so whatever. <laughs> yes, whatever is fun. Awesome, awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. Um, I am just in awe that that people want to come and talk to us and and just just know that you're safe here and that we just want to hold space for um, for your story and so I just really want to thank you and I know Julie thanks you for being here so I guess we'll just jump into it um, I would just love to hear when did you start noticing that maybe something was different or something that was wrong sure um, so. I think for me, I actually got, um, I started having symptoms when I was quite young, around seven years old. Um, 
there was a, a school performance decline that started. Um, I was your very typical bubbly, outgoing, um, type A uh, personality, front of the class, raising your hands, you know, really trying to do her absolute best with everything and loving that pursuit. And um, that was the first noticeable thing that um, my parents picked up on. Um, over time, that progressed to an increase in emotionality, just being very sensitive, um, being overwhelmed easily. Um, and then one day, my family and I were on a vacation and we went to Lake Tahoe, which is this beautiful mountain quaint resort known for skiing in California. And um, it was the first snowfall that I was ever going to see. And I was so excited because, you know, this is stuff that you see in movies as a kid and it's just so magical. And my first night there, I um, wake up in the middle of the night and experience my first panic attack. And I thought I was dying. Um, I physically remember um, like not being able to breathe in the sense where when you try to breathe, your breath almost feels heavy and scratchy because the, the breath just can't really get out. Um, and I kind of fumbled my way down the stairs, went into my parents' bedroom, got my mom. And for the rest of the night, my mom cradled me and I just sobbed until it passed. And, um, I actually said, once the panic attack was done, I looked at my mom and I said, mom, something's wrong with me. And that was the first time where I was like, oh no, what's happening? Yeah, that was the first time. Wow, I'm so sorry. Um, yeah, one of the things that I just find so heartbreaking, but also fascinating about, about your story is just um, how, how young things started. So how, where did you go from there? Yes, so um, depression basically seeped in at that point. Um, I spent the rest of that, what was supposed to be such a nice vacation, actually inside watching my siblings play in the snow crying. I could not stop crying. Um, and that progressed to um, eventually um, uh, experiencing kind of this overwhelming, um, what is it called? Like a hyper awareness of my thoughts. I was a very um, morally aware child. <laughs> I loved rules. I loved order, right, wrong. I, I love that black and white. It brought me safety in, in that boundary. So the problem with this is that it's, you know, um, it's a hyper focus, so it's unhealthy. And so I would actually do some odd behaviors where I would be in class, I would already be depressed. And I would have the thought, this is too hard. I don't like this class, this class is dumb. Mm -hmm. And I would feel this overwhelming amount of guilt as if I had just committed a crime because this was such a bad thing. How could you think that this teacher is so nice? And I felt so bad. And I actually got up from my desk, walked over to my teacher and apologized for having the thought. And then I begged her to forgive me and I would never think that again. And that was really hard. And I remember in the moment, not seeing anything wrong with that because it was such a powerful urge. Yeah. Um, but that was definitely um, 
probably the most shocking behavior up to that point because it's so out of the norm. Yeah, yeah. And would it like in front of the other students? Um, Absolutely, yeah, in front of the other students. And then there's the judgment on top of the thought. Yeah, and it was powerful. I, I would do that at home with my parents. My mom would ask me, you know, hey, you know, can you do your morning chores? And then I would, because I was depressed, I'd get tired. And then I would go to my mom and I'd say, I'm so sorry, but I'm really, really tired. And, and I feel bad that I'm tired. And I just put meaning on everything. I just started saying, sorry, 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 sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that put a lot of, um, like the initial, the initial um, kind of bruise of what shame is, you know? Yeah. And it wasn't intentional, it just happened. Yeah. Um, but that kind of was where, you know, my mom started taking notes, calling some doctors, what's happening here? This doesn't seem like the right way a seven-year-old would think. Yeah. Um, and then it jumped up a notch where um, my logic was getting skewed, where um, I specifically remember my parents sat me down in bed. They had a list of questions to ask me from the doctors. And the first question was, what's the color of your shirt? And I couldn't give them an answer. Um, I knew it was yellow, but whose perspective are we talking about? That's what I thought. I was thinking, well, in a different light, it could be orange. And if you're colorblind, it could be red. Or if you're blind, it's black. You know, like, I just, I became this, like, obsessive philosopher where you answer questions of questions. Wow. And that might be like, okay, that's concerning, you know, but the problem was then you up the ante to further questions of, is it okay to rob a bank? And then it got really concerning because I knew the gravity of those questions. I knew what I was being asked and I was terrified. I was terrified that I was being asked and I was terrified that I couldn't figure out how to respond except with question marks. Um, but that, 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 that depression, that immense amount of, um, constant, um, just crying, being overwhelmed, all of those things bubbled into, um, going to therapy at uh, eight years old the first time. How beautiful that your parents were like in, in tune at that time or trying to, to, you know, get you get you help that's yeah I I cannot relate to young Maria but the overthinking and the wanting the right answer and the paralyze like paralyzing you because you're not sure what the answer is wow wow and then how did the therapy go well the therapy um was you know I I was so eager to want to get help you know I I was I constantly would say, I just want to be a good girl. It makes me want to cry um, because my heart was so desperate for wanting to let, to reassure everybody. Like, I'm not crazy. I'm, I promise. Like, I'm not, I don't mean to hurt anybody. Why are you looking at me that way? Please, I'm fine. And so I was very excited in the small way you can be when you're depressed to go to therapy. Um, However, unfortunately, by the time that that came, this probably was over six to eight month period. Um, by the end of that time frame, 
um, my um, kind of obsessive thoughts started turning into um, self-harm thoughts and started turning into um, suicidal and homicidal thoughts. And they came at lightning speed. I pretty much couldn't even think because they were just in and in and in and in and in and in and in it. And um, so it was clear that I was in a very scary place. And I was so scared that I pretty much didn't let anyone touch me except my mom. I never picked up any utensils, pencils, forks, anything sharp, because I was so terrified that I was having these thoughts. I wanted nothing to associate with harm. Um, so it was pretty much a guarantee to everyone else that I was going to be hospitalized. Um, but I was, I didn't know that. <laughs> so when I got in there, my therapist asked me, you know, can you promise you won't harm yourself or others, which in itself is kind of a traumatic question <laughs> to a kid who doesn't know what's going on. You know, the kid wants to hear nothing bad's going to happen. You're not going to do anything because you're a good kid, but that's not what I was getting. People are questioning me. Right. And so, um, my logic, I remember thinking at that time, if I have the thought that I am hungry, I go to eat. So if I have the thought, I don't want to be here, do, does that mean I'm going to do it? And I remember eight-year-old me thinking that and fighting with that. Like that logic doesn't seem to transfer like that. Like it can't transfer like that. And so I answered honestly and I said, I don't know. Um, and because I couldn't give that set answer, off I went. And that was in 2005. Yeah. Wow. The, the fact that you answered honestly, right? At that age. Wow. wow. And so where exactly did you go? Was it in the hospital? What does that, what does that look like? Sure. So this was, um, I, forgive me, I don't know the terminology for it, but it's, you know, the actual hospital where you stay for, I had, I was on a 5150. Okay. Um, so I was on that whole period of time. Um, I, I went to actually, um, it was well-meaning and, and understanding that I was taken to the hospital, but I was actually taken to the worst hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, uh, was supposed to be put on a children's ward, but for whatever reason, they put me on a teen ward and how teens deal with mental illness is so different. <laughs> I can't even imagine. Uh, yeah. I have children and right now they are teenagers and thinking about them when they're eight and thinking about the kinds of things they think and talk about as teenagers. Wow. And so, wow, that's a lot. Yeah. So what did, I'm so curious if you're willing to talk about it. What do you remember what any of those days looked like or what that was, what that was like? Sure. Um, I remember, so there were a lot of tests, blood tests, brain scans. Um, my parents were doing everything they could to get me help. So I remember I felt like, um, you know, sometimes I remember I, I described myself as a machine being tested to put out into production. That's what I had described myself as a, as a little girl. But, um, I remember also it as much as a time that it was supposed to be focusing on 
me and getting me to be in a more stable and safe place. Um, I was severely traumatized by my environment and I was mostly focusing on everybody else. Um, I was put, that ward was actually nicknamed the AWOL ward because everyone was pretty much um, either violent, aggressive. There was every five minutes, there were cops there. There was sirens, there was straight jackets. There was what we called the booty shot, like a tranquilizer. I mean, screaming all night long, it was horrifying. And I was the youngest girl there mm -hmm. and the teens thought it was kind of funny so they would come up and tell me their stories about abuse and prostitution and gangs and poverty and all these horrific things. And, and then we sat down in this group and this nurse was mad because these teenagers weren't listening. And they were just, you know, as any teenager, most teenagers are reckless. So if you add in hardship, of course, they're going to be frustrated. So she was addressing them, but she forgot that there was a kid in the group. And she told everybody in the group, if you don't fix yourself, you are going to end up on the streets, homeless and addicted to drugs. Oh. And so to me, that was someone telling me the trajectory of my life. If I couldn't fix myself. And that is how I left my first hospitalization. So you've internalized this scary, scary future. Yeah. And I made a very point to, um, draw the line where I actually was separating and almost stigmatizing people with mental illness because I didn't want that future for me. And so I just said, I'm not like them. There's no way I'm like them. I can't be like them. And, um, I, and you know, these people became my friends. I, you know, they were all beautiful people. I call them superheroes because they're the most humble people that every day are heroic and no one knows about, you know? Um, but, they were also people that endured much and I had to watch and it was very hard and it put, I came from such a naive world. My parents were raised me in this beautiful bubble. You know, as a kid, the world was beautiful. And then I just got thrown like, Hey, welcome to the world. <laughs> yeah. So that didn't do much for my depression. <laughs> no. And seeing things that we don't even allow our eight year olds allow to watch on TV or seeing this, out in real life wow and did were they trying different medications there um yeah just what was what was that like and um generally just so you know and I think I told you that before and just for our listeners and our watchers we don't really disclose exactly what um, medication we're on not because we're ashamed of it but just I know that sometimes it's hard not to hold on to that and hope that it's that it would work for you so uh, medication is definitely a part of Julie and I's treatment plan but I'm just curious as a kid were they trying different ones during that time yes uh they definitely were I think I was on in that time frame maybe three different meds yeah. um it was difficult because at that age I'm sure you know you're familiar with this but you know doctors don't want to diagnose at a young age right so it was just kind of experiment um, so it was a, it was rough. Luckily I didn't have too many, um, side effects issues. It was just, you know, um, I feel a little icky. I'd say something, they'd take me off of it. Right. It was a pretty, I had a pretty good care team. That's a blessing. 
Wow. And so after this amount of time, they discharged you back home, like, or let you out, let you to go back home? Yes, they um, let me back home. And then two weeks later, I went back <laughs> to the same hospital. That's not good. <laughs> and, um, but um, we, we basically ended up figuring out the best thing for me was um, to remove me from school. So I was taken out of my private school, which was a lot of pressure, um, especially in the format that the school kind of um, taught. Um, so that was, that was a good move. And we went into homeschooling me from um, sixth grade to eighth grade. I had in-home hospital, I think it's called, um, people visiting me, helping me with schoolwork, but also providing treatment kind of management with my emotions as I'm trying to do my school. Um, my mother is a saint. She had five other kids and had to deal with all of that. And she still was loving and patient and mm -hmm. constantly just doing everything she could to make sure that I just felt safe and heard and got the care I received. But I, I definitely consider those years, sixth to eighth grade, um, I call them my dark years. I did not experience one moment of happiness. Oh, friend. So hard. And those are the, those, just watching my children, those are hard years where you're watching everybody around you. And I see them, you know, just for the first time, so desperately, you know, wanting to fit in and wanting to, to feel like they belong to something or some some kind of group did you have because you were home and you were in a bubble and not feeling well did you have friends that you would see or was it mostly family so i was actually a part of this group called chep and it um is community home education program so it's the community comes together like um two or three times a week okay. so that was i did have social time mm -hmm. uh, i actually even Oh, I take back. I did have a little bit of happiness. Most of it was pretty horrible, but I actually did. Um, my mom convinced me to do um, a couple musicals. So I did do that and make some friends that way. Um, I was very emotional throughout the process and it was very exhausting. That was kind of all I could do is learn my script, take a nap, learn my script, take a nap. But it did bring me a little bit of purpose and probably that's what got me through just bearing those just gloomy days. Right. Yeah. It must have been so confusing as a child. Yeah. Yes, it was confusing. It was. Um, it, it was definitely a weird, because when you're, you know, at, at seven, eight, nine years old, that's when your identity starts to form. Who am I? What do I like? What do I believe in? Um, that slow separation from your parents and deform who you are mm -hmm. and being um, having these experiences that I was having um, my identity started to form to what we later called in therapy as sick girl the sick girl that was me that was who I am these are this is my life these are only people that are sick are the only people that can be my friends because they're the only people that understand you know I'm not going to go anywhere because that's what the nurse said. So my identity was pretty compounded and um, really distorted in that way, um, which, like you said, made it very hard and confusing. Um, but thank God that I had those musicals yeah. um, because they, they definitely 
gave me a little glimpse of, well, there could be something else for you too. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So you've done homeschool up to grade eight, then, then what happened? Um, then I got introduced to my friend Hypomania. <laughs> and suddenly all the happiness I didn't experience just, just like sparkled and just blew up in my face and everything was wonderful and magical. And, um, it was, um, I was, I started a new school, um, and I, it was like everything that happened didn't happen. And I liked it that way. And I kept that door shut and nothing in my past could come back up. So I really, um, utilized my space of happiness to do everything I could that made me feel good. Yeah. So I had a new crush every single week. I am telling you, it was a constant thing. God bless my best friend, Tatiana, who had to hear me talk about boys on the regular, every second of every day. She has so much patience. Um, and um, I also played basketball, softball. I danced. I ended up running a half marathon. I was working at McDonald's. Um, I was just living and breathing joy constantly. And I had no um, knowledge that I was um, slightly off in, in that feeling. I thought that was normal and that everyone felt that way. Um, and I didn't know that like my parents were already noting like possible bipolar. Right. And um, so, I think it was good they didn't tell me at the time where I was. Right. Um, I was still going to therapy. Um, but it was definitely um, a time in my life where I felt um, actually good to be me. Right. Well, and I don't know about you, but when I'm in my deepest depressions, that feels so good that anything that came along that was bad with hypomania seemed like a great trade-off because I just didn't, didn't want to be depressed and I can see that I can see the the boy thing for sure I can see, almost see little Maria being like <laughs> I'm gonna marry this person except for tomorrow I'm gonna marry this soulmate I can picture that because it is I love how you said it's it is so sparkly like hypomania is it things are so sparkly it's almost intoxicating Oh, 100% and addictive because I hear so often like judgment of people going off their meds or why would they when they're sick or whatever. Uh, if I'm honest with you, I miss full-blown hypomania. I don't miss the fall or the things that come along with it, but I do miss the energy and the creativity and just that that feeling, that, es that escape. So how long did that last? So that was um, freshman year to about mid to end of um, junior year. Um, what was that in terms of grades? I'm in Canada. I'm so sorry, yes. Yeah. So um, ninth grade to <laughs> ninth grade to eleven. Gotcha. Yes. Yeah, and I would. Um, I think I. So it's interesting because I was looking back on my diaries before today, trying to think of what to say wow. because of like how to describe the hypomania. But I actually would um, 
I had a dresser. If you imagine a dresser that's like almost half as tall as your ceiling, that's wood, right? So it was covered in poems to the boys I loved in permanent marker. And every night I would turn on Coast 103.5, which is um, Orange County's Love Songs channel. And I would open my window, sit on the ledge and just, and just, (laughs) just write in my diary page after page after page after page. I was just, I loved love. I, I had like the, what are they called? Collages of like wedding gowns and really it was your hyper fixation, right? Yes, it was very much on that. And, um, yeah, so it was kind of a shocking turn of events when um, that other part of hypomania that isn't discussed as often, but that agitation kind of kicked in. Mm-hmm. And really, you know, you start looking at hypomania a little differently. You don't like it as much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, and I didn't know that's what was happening. Um, now I do. But because I felt like, oh my gosh, I'm going back to how I was before, that can't happen. I know what my trajectory is. So I, um, how I explain it, cause it, it kind of, it happened naturally. It wasn't really intentional, but it's like, when you feel like you start losing control of the outside, you start trying to control the inside. Yes. And so I started engaging in eating disorder behaviors. Yeah. Cause that made me feel controlled. Yeah. And I think that's pretty logical <laughs> and it's uncommon, uncommon because I, I know that I was misdiagnosed so much because I only had the eating disorder when I was depressed and then I couldn't even, and kept track and, and all these things. But when I would do the switch to hypomania, I couldn't even tell you what I ate at all to go from that. So I was like, if it was a true disordered eating like actual eating disorder wouldn't it be all the time I found that very very mm-hmm. confusing so I I hear you when you say it's something you can control wow yeah. yeah yes and being that type a personality as a kid I still am that way so you know I love control so give me an option to control and I'll control <laughs> and um yeah so it became quite um frustrating for me when I realized that Although it did help, it did not fix. Right. And um, I started um, just really struggling with reacti- reactivity, just being so overreactive with anger. Yeah. Um, I would actually at times um, come home and someone would say something and I would go to my room, shut my door, and I would bury myself under the blankets, as many blankets as I could to feel weight because I felt like if I wasn't held down, I would start flipping chairs and tables and screaming and, you know, just like releasing inner rage. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I carried that for a long time thinking that's who I was and what a terrible person I was. And one being a woman, it's not anger does not look good on us apparently right? We weren't supposed to, and then being a woman of faith, it's like gentleness. Yeah. <laughs> and like I, uh, and it's, I couldn't explain to people like how, how fast it would come on and how I, I couldn't think of anything else. So, uh, wow. Yeah. It's interesting. 
the, you know, now that there is, you know, science behind weighted blankets, it's interesting that it was an instinct for you. Wow. Yeah. It, it's really funny um, how I was able to um, draw connections with different things and apply it. I think it, it's a little bit of um, even, I, yes, I hyper-focus at things, but sometimes I think that pays off because I remember things that I saw that stood out to me because I have that hyper-focus ability. Yeah. Um, but I started experiencing shortly after that mixed states. Oh, no. Um, and um, self-harm got involved because it, it, I've never felt so conflicted in that space before of, you know, feeling like there are two people in your body, you know, one person's trying to like rip off your left arm, the other one's trying to rip off your right arm, and you're just sitting there in this tug of war. Yeah. It's horrible. Um, and one of the worst, this really describes how bad mine got. Um, I, um, it was, I couldn't sleep, and it was probably three in the morning, and this agitation would not leave. Um, my suicide ideation had come back and I was absolutely terrified. Um, and I was in such an agitated state where I actually felt like I might attempt. And um, I didn't want to disturb my parents. They'd already done so much for me. I didn't want to wake my siblings. Don't want to try to make things worse for them. So I actually um, remembered uh, the movie Temple Grandin. I don't know if you've seen that movie. Um, she has... Um, some type of disability. I forget which one it is, and I don't want to say the wrong, the wrong one, but it's a sensory problem. Uh, mm -hmm. It's one of her issues. And she lived on a farm, and she went out to the stalls where the cows were when she was having a panic attack one day. And there's this machinery that actually clamps around the cow and holds the cow while the cow is rustling, and it calms the cow. That weight calms the cow. Mm -hmm. um, and she put herself in it and mm -hmm. closed it so that she could calm, and it worked, it calmed her panic attack. And I remembered that and I said, okay, I need weight. So I actually flipped my bed on top of myself. Yeah. And I actually um, got rubber, 20 rubber bands and I tied my, my hands so that I was completely immobilized. And I stayed that way crying for probably 20 minutes and then it completely went away. Wow. Wow. And then was this all in secret? Like your parents didn't? Wow. They didn't know about that event till much later um, because it was such a, um, it's scary to hear about your child at a point that could be so close to losing them. And I didn't want to scare them because they already had so many of those scares. And that moment definitely represented a place of growing instability and, and coming out of that what looked like more functional hypomania into more dysfunctional mixed states yeah. um and so that that i was just like nope we're just gonna keep it down we're gonna start a new day and that is kind of the entryway into college was um, eating disorders, self-harm, suicide ideation, and severe mixed states. Typically, it was on a two-week basis, so I would start two weeks of one month, and I would be that that girl I once was as a kid before everything hit, the A student, loving life, you know, things were normal, balanced, and then the next two weeks would go full-blown chaos. Wow. 
-hmm. And that's what I was just living in for that first um, couple years of college, just ping pong, ping pong, ping pong. Um, and able to keep like do school and still, wow, yeah. It was not, I, I tried, I would do school for a year and then I would drop and I would change to uh, career, uh, what is it called? Um, change, um, yeah, I guess careers. Um, you know, what am I saying? The, what are they called? Uh, majors, majors, that's what it is. <laughs> yes, I would change majors because, you know, again, I'm looking to fix and I'm not realizing what the issue is. So I'm just, well, if I pivot and just do something completely different, I'll be fine. So I just kept pivoting. Um, and it, um, at this point I had, um, been self-harming on jobs. I had been eating disorder. Um, I've been acting out my eating disorder at work and being caught. Um, I had, uh, about at this time, so four years in, I was only had a year done of college, even four years in. And I had um, 17 jobs that I could have. Yeah, because I was just so all over with everything, just how I was thinking, my moods. It was just this rapid change constantly. Yeah. Um, and were you like mostly let go or you quit or both? No, I always took control. I was never fired. I was always, nope, done, 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 done. And it was done for different reasons. It was either done for, I don't like this anymore. And it was more of like a momentary hypomania place where I don't need this place. I'm better than it. Or yeah. it was done out of desperation because I was embarrassed or um, something had happened. I had an incident, actually, this comes to mind, where... I was working as a hostess. I was probably 18, 19, 19 maybe. And um, on my way to work, I started um, having suicide ideation. And my the way my thoughts work is I'm very imaginative. So mm -hmm. they're almost like, it's almost like I can see it, whatever's in my mind. It's like this little daydream, right? Mm -hmm. So it's very traumatic to me to have a thought because I it's almost like I see it and I still attach meaning to it so I started experiencing these things and at this point I am exhausted I have tried everything nothing is working I don't know how I'm supposed to live I don't know how I'm supposed to function I don't know how I'm supposed to be quote-unquote normal or whatever that means yeah and I start having a panic attack on the public bus on the way to work. So I get off the bus, I go to a donut store and I had four donuts. Yeah. Um, I knew that if I had sugar, it would take me out of the panic attack. Um, but that also spirals you. <laughs> so yeah. then I started spiraling. Long story short, I ended up going on a four mile walk where I ended up um, in a forest near the house, uh, near our house, like two miles from our house. Um, and I uh, laid down in the river and just cried. And it was almost instinctual because I remember thinking, you know, nature is supposed to be relaxing. And I remember having that one clear thought 
So if my thought was just like, go get in nature, get in nature, if you're going to survive this, get in nature, whatever you have to do, go to nature. Wow. And um, so for me to come back home to my house, for my mom to see me in mud, dripping in sweat, no shoes, sobbing profusely, wow. it was like, okay, time for the big kahunas. We are doing something more serious. And I was admitted to a 30-day hospitalization in LA. And was it a different place? Yes, much different. This was like high rated. They teach you DBT skills, CBT skills. Um, they, one of the only ways you can enter actually into the group program is you have to acknowledge that you do have a problem and that you do need help. And that was very hard for me. I did not want to admit that. So um, just that first step was very powerful for me. Um, so that was, um, clear view and it was an amazing experience I met wonderful girls who were in the same boat in different ways um and it and it definitely helped for that period of time wow and you said that was 30 days mm -hmm. 30 days and um I after that um there's a therapist that was kind of connected to that group um, and she, we heard about her, we got referred to her, I started with her, and um, she had this, he kind of functioned as like almost an outpatient, mm -hmm. um, but um, when I got there, she told me that there's me and this other girl, and that we both were the most high-risk patients, the most complex patients in regards to people didn't understand how to treat them or treat us, and she thought I should meet her. Um, and I remember seeing her from across the room and she actually, I'd seen a lot in my life, but I had never seen self-harm scars like that in my life. And I remember thinking like this girl has to be the strongest person alive to have to feel that kind of pain and to still be standing. Wow. Yeah. And I was actually inspired by just her standing there. And I immediately thought, yeah, we're going to be best friends. Yeah. And um, so I came up to her, started talking, and um, we developed this beautiful friendship, almost like, like a sisterhood, where we were like soldiers in the trenches where mm -hmm. I would see her in her moments of absolute vulnerability where she is mm -hmm. having, you know, memories and PTSD and all this stuff. And I'm the only one there that can help her and vice versa where I'm experiencing things and she helps me. And we became this team together where, you know, we both inspired each other to live and we would tell each other, <clears throat> I'll see you tomorrow and it was a promise and then she'll say I'll see you tomorrow and I was like okay just one more day one more day one more day wow yeah yeah that was my girl <laughs> wow yeah how, how beautiful to well like you guys belong to each other right yeah I mean really like we did and she would she would take me to um, the beach when I was having a hard time and she would make me lay down on the sand and look up at the stars. And she would dare me to dream. Mm. And she would just sit there and she would be like, 
you know, what do you want to do like in 10 years? I'm like, I don't even know if I'm going to be here. She's like, I know, but what do you want to do? Like, let's think about it. And then she would, she would just help me. And we would just for hours talk about everything from our future house and the carpet and, and, and the curtains and the flowers we'd want on the kitchen table and, you know, our future spouses and how kind they would be and understanding and, and, and strong also. And, you know, what we would, what role we would play in each other's lives. And it was just this, this absolute moment of um, like heaven where for a second we felt like we could breathe and she would give that to me. It, it was this gift. She would, in, she would instigate this to happen. I wouldn't, she would. Right. It was absolute beautiful, like so beautiful. And um, she was um, like just this beautiful, this, she was just a beautiful human. She had every reason to hate the world, every reason, every reason to hate the world. And she loved everybody. Everyone that did her harm in her past, all of her trauma, she had forgiven everybody. There was no hate. I mean, she would correct me because I was at that time so bitter and reckless. And she would just very lovingly be like, maybe say something nicer about that person. Wow. And I mean, just this miraculous individual. And, um, and so she kept me going, you know, at that time, you know, no one could get to me. My parents couldn't get to me. Doctors couldn't get to me. Um, I was actually on a medication that <clears throat> was making me more suicidal, but they didn't want to take me off of it because it would, like the doctor said, it wouldn't be like a 90% sure thing that I would attempt because of how drastic that, you know, withdrawal would be. So they just kept me on it instead. And I kept telling people, I'm going to do it. I feel it coming. I can't help it. Please do something. Please, please. And everyone, all the doctors, nope, nope, nope. So it became like this, felt like a game to me. Like what's, what is, what is anything worth? Like I'm going in circles, not getting better. Everything that I was running from as a kid, I'm now running to, that's what it feels like. Yeah. And, um, so one day I was, um, trying to read a book and I couldn't read a sentence and I freaked out because I thought, well, if I can't read a sentence, what can I do in life? I can't read. And then that nurse popped in and being like, fix it, or this is your life. Oh. So to me, when I realized I couldn't read, I felt as if signed, sealed, delivered, I was going to be homeless soon. Oh. And I had this huge panic attack. Um, I actually overdosed on all my meds. And before I finished them, I recognized, hey, this could actually kill me. Maybe I shouldn't do this because I wasn't aware at that time because I was just spiraling. And then I remember thinking, well, I'd be doing the world a favor anyway. Oh. So then I took the rest of it, which makes it then not an overdose. It makes it a suicide attempt. And um, I was ready for it. I was not scared. I was happy to go to a place where I would be at peace. And I would not trouble my parents anymore, my siblings. And crawled into bed covers over me, hug my teddy bear. All right, that's it, lights out. And then I remembered, I promise, 
promised my friend that I'd be there tomorrow. I promised her. So I can't let her down after everything she's done. So I got to, I got to call her and I, I just got to tell her I'm not going to be there tomorrow. Mm. So I got picked up the phone. I called her and I was like, sorry. Uh, I know you're going to be mad at me, but I'm not going to be there tomorrow. And she freaked out, started screaming. Um, she kept telling me to throw up, just throw up the pills, throw them up, throw them up, throw them up. Yeah. And um, I wouldn't. And for, I don't know how, but she convinced me to call my parents. Mm -hmm. And um, somehow, my memory's really blurry, but somehow something she said resonated with me. And I called them. And um, long story short, I was taken to the ICU. Um, I was um, intubated. I was having seizures. Um, and the doctors um, did not know I was going to make it. Um, Tori was... Um, sitting in the waiting room for that whole thing. And um, she wouldn't leave. And she only left when my parents forced her to so that she could take care of herself. Um, but yeah. Just want to say to our, our listeners, um, this is really hard to hear. And if you're someone that's experiencing this, please, please take care of yourself. And please, please, please call, call for help. Um, there are so many, so many emergency lines, but if this was really hard to hear. Please, you know, step back and, and, and take care of yourself. Um, thank you for sharing that with us. Yes, and it's not, you know, this is a horrible, horrible thing. Um, it's hard to put words to that. It's hard to put words to um, you know, to wake up just that, to be given a chance to wake up. Um, you can you can feel the guilt. You can feel it and the shame like in the back part beneath your stomach. I specifically remember where. And it's like a weight that feels like it's 200 pounds and it's just sitting there. And it makes you want to throw up. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I woke up to my siblings in the bed with me. Wow. And that was really, really hard. However, it also was a blessing in disguise because it actually got me off that medication because I was out. Mm -hmm. And it got me off all my bad medications that made me so sick that were making me act even worse. Mm -hmm. um, and it, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I think what people that don't struggle don't understand is it's just about, it's more about like correct me if I'm wrong, stopping pain. It's more about stopping pain than, than dying, right? 
because you're you're so desperate and I used to be like no no never had suicidal ideation no 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 I wouldn't and then you know upon reflection because I knew and I have such a cyclical like I, I could almost to the month know when things were going to get better that I would I could hold on to that but I'm curious if I did it mm. how I would feel and I also remember just wanting to sleep for those six months and not wake up until then and thinking more about it wanting to go to sleep for a very long time I I think is a form of ideation and I think the more that we talk about it and that's why I just am so in awe of you and I just think you're so 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 very brave I think that you know we need to talk about things we have a stereotype right or we have this what's on tv or we have also there's just really terrible narratives about people that attempt or about people that you know pass by by suicide I think that like judgment or anything like that just seems wild to me that someone could could think that it seems like where's the compassion like for for someone to feel you know such little hope and then we blame them or you know have have complicated feelings about it and i i just think that um i just think you sharing is just really going to honestly save lives thank you I appreciate that. I'm, I think, you know, my life has, my life was saved from, you know, my best friend. You know, if I didn't talk to her, if I didn't have that pack with her, right. I wouldn't be here. You know, there's a good chance of that. And um, yeah, and I was also going to touch the point too, that I think oftentimes when you're in a place where your, your thinking is so disorganized and you're in such distress, you know, the, the overwhelming desire is peace or calm or, or to be grounded. And when you're in that place, the only thing that for whatever reason, I think sometimes our mind goes to is all the extreme. Oh, well, we have to go there. When actuality, what we learn through therapy, through our loved ones, through different avenues of treatment is that there are management skills. There are things that you can do to help ease you out of that such intense emotion. Yeah. And when, you know, you, you, you don't have those tools, you know, that that's what, why therapy is so important, why asking for help is so important, because oftentimes it's not that you actually want that. I didn't really want that. I was just tired. Mm. I was just so tired. That I just wanted to sit on a really fluffy couch and to just sleep and wake up and feel refreshed. That's really all I wanted, you know? Yeah. But in that moment when there's so much chaos, it's so hard to navigate. And so that was something I learned from that is, you know, when you're in that place, you, you have an emergency folder, you have um, steps and protocols that you follow to help you because you can get through that. We can get through that. And um, that is the blessing of, you know, the world we live in and hopefully the treatment that hopefully is accessible to the you know, some of us, if not a good amount of us. Yeah. Um, so I'm um, by no means do I want to glorify that at all. It was a horrible act on my part. However, I was also 
in a state where I couldn't think logically and when I didn't have access to self. I didn't yeah. have access to Maria. Yeah. You know? So that plays a major role. <laughs> it's so hard to explain to people that these aren't fleeting thoughts, that they take over and they don't just take over your mind. It's your whole body and you're so desperate to stop. I know I read even about, um, you know, people with that live with bipolar disorder, like how high the percentages of drug use or, or things, you know, like that. And I know there's a, you know, a lot of judgment about that. And I think like you community stopped me from that because honestly, when I was at my worst, if you would have said that this would make me feel better, I wouldn't. And I, I just have such compassion. Um, um, now and just yeah the intensity it's like and sometimes I experience and I don't know if you experience this where um before the medication that works for me just I knew it was a wild thought and I knew it wasn't true but I couldn't control thinking it and I found that even more horrifying and I even it's something I said said for a while until I realized it probably wasn't something um, that I should say, but I used to say, like, I wish I didn't know I was, you know, quote unquote, I didn't have a different word, but crazy. I wish I didn't know. And then everyone else could just deal and I would just not, you know, the knowing, but still feeling it anyway is so frustrating. And I think that goes back to stigma in that we think we can control, you know, our, our thought. Why don't they just choose to get out of bed? Why don't you just choose to go for a walk or, you know, choose to breathe? Like it took me years to realize I don't breathe deeply. I breathe up here, right? I, 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 it was like almost painful to sit and take deep breaths. Like it was just such a, can be such a simple thing for people. I still struggle to either meditate or, or take deep breaths. Um, I don't do well doing it alone, right? Like I have to have my yoga teacher or whatever for long periods of time. It's, it's the simple things are really, really hard. Yeah, they are. They are hard. Yeah, I remember when I was a little girl. I am um, one of my first therapy sessions. They were teaching me how to breathe. I was like, "This is dumb." Hundred <laughs> percent. That's me. I'm like, "Yeah, okay. I've got these huge problems. Breathe." Like, yes. And then years later, you to tell me to breathe, like. <laughs> realizing more and more and we're going to talk about this in a second episode of the things that help I always thought they were going to be huge right yeah yeah before so we're going to tell the rest of Maria's story in the next episode but before we move to that I would love um what would you say to someone that's right before that chaos or even in that experiencing that moment of wanting peace and um, desperate to end uh, the pain, what what would you say to them? Mm. Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, I think that's all about distress regulation. I've learned through a lot of DBT, um, but sometimes I think um, as much as tools can be helpful in, in moments when intensity, like in that situation is so high, I think honestly, like what you're saying, community, 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 even if it's one person, even if it's a friend, a neighbor, just tell somebody. And our, from 
everything I've experienced, I've met so many different types of people. I know all of you have as well, but um, I think most people are good people. And I think most people will respond in care and will respond in a way that can be helpful. So whoever that is to you, I would say to use that last bit of strength to just reach out, extend that arm, ask for help. And, you know, we're hanging there right with you. Yeah. And keep, keep asking if it's the, you know what I mean? If it's the, the wrong person or someone that, that, that doesn't feel safe, just keep asking. Cause you're right. Like I, that's just so beautiful that that simple thing, like see you tomorrow. Like just, it's when it seems so overwhelming, like see you tomorrow, show up. Right. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing um, so much of this. I can imagine that um, yeah, this is really, really hard, um, but just know that this is so such a gift, such a gift to me and our community. And I'm really excited for everybody um, to hear the next episode and the next step, um, steps Maria took. And so um, I hope you join us with that. So yeah, this is Bipolar. <laughs>